In Romans 6 this morning, I'm just going to read it very quickly because it's only a couple verses. Romans 6, 20 through 23 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in church for a while, you'll notice that every church, every worship service has its own uh, liturgy, has its own order of service, steps that we go through kind of week in and week out that ground and, and form the basis or the structure of our worship together. Uh, but this ordering of things, this liturgy, isn't unique to churches or religious organizations. If you go to any club or any gathering, you'll find there's a certain liturgy and ordering of things. And I think I've said this before, but this is true very much in sports. Uh, if you go to a professional sports game, there is a liturgy to that. So I remember going to the one and only Chiefs game I've been to, and at the start of the game, there was somebody who rode out on a horse, as part of the, like, the liturgy, and there's fireworks that went off and all that kind of thing. If you go to a Royals game, there's going to be a certain order of things that have to happen from um, practice to throwing around balls and change innings. There's always certain patterns that are there as part of the liturgy of the event. And in, in sports also, in most professional sports, there's one common thing across those sports as part of the liturgy, and that is the, some of you may guess it, singing of the national anthem, right? And what does everybody do? As part of that religious service, they stand and remove their hats out of respect, and somebody leads us in song over the national anthem. All right, that, that, that's, a, that's a liturgy. That's what that is. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just it's an ordering, a pattern of how things happen. Now, specifically thinking of the national anthem that's sung, sang, I don't remember what the correct past tense is there. Um, what's the climax? One of the things that makes our particular national anthem so wonderful, the part that everybody kind of sings along and builds, I won't do it because I don't have that kind of voice. <laughs> the land of the... <laughs> I should have seen that coming. It totally ruins the rest of the sermon. It's all thrown off from here on out. I don't know how to make this about the Chiefs from now on. I... No, the land of the free. Free. Free, you know, and we, we kind of grade the singer on how well they can hit that note. It all comes down to that. If they can't do that, then they're no good. But if they can hit that note, I don't think it's by accident that that's the most emphasized word. That is, that idea, freedom is really at the basis of so much of our American culture. And in fact, I would argue that freedom is the, the true American idol. It's the thing that we value above all else in our American culture, freedom. Sociological studies have shown that this is the thing that we as Americans value above maybe all other values, that idea of freedom. And that 
The value isn't all bad. I mean, the American concept of freedom is wonderful and has given rights and privileges to historically underprivileged people. So there's a lot of good and a lot of wonder and value about that ideal of freedom that is particular to our culture. However, there is a, um, there's a dark side to that, particularly, I think, when trying to read Scripture and, and comparing our value of freedom to what Scripture says and a life under Jesus Christ. Because what will happen is that ideal that God, at times, of freedom will come in direct conflict with our worshiping of Jesus Christ. That's really what we're talking about today. We've been going through a sermon series on what are the biggest objections to Christianity. What are the things that cause people to say, I don't think I want anything to do with Christianity. So we've talked about some hard um, concepts, moral issues, uh, and we'll do that for the next few weeks as well hitting different topics, and what are the, the, the problems and the maybe obstacles, barriers that people have to, to being a Christian? What are they? I think this one, today's topic, is at the core of all of it. I think this is the single biggest objection, the single biggest hurdle to becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, is freedom, or the question might be posed this way, will God make me change my whole life? If I were to become a Christian, would God make me change everything? I think that is the biggest obstacle. Will God make me change my whole life? Will Christianity make me into a really weird person who goes to services like this and claps out of tune and I have to get up on Sunday mornings and... Like, is that, is that, do I have to become like that? Do I have to give up my freedoms, the things that I hold dear, the, the things that I'm engaged in, the things I like to do with my week and my time and, and my own morality and all those things? Do I have to give that up to follow Jesus? Does, is God going to make me change my whole life? I think that's the biggest objection. It's the one I want to deal with today, and we're going to deal with it by looking at Romans 6, 20 through 23. In these couple of verses, what Paul's doing is he's talking to Christians. So he's talking to Christians in Rome, he's writing to Romans, and he's calling them actually to live holy lives. He's trying to call them to live obedient to Jesus Christ. And he's reminding them of what their lives were like before. Before they were Christian, this is what it was like. And now, this is what it's like. So this, these whole verses, they're basically a kind of a compare contrast. There's two different ways. Here's a cost-benefit analysis. Is the trade worth it? what you had before compared to what you have now as Christians. So Paul, the author of this book, Romans, is talking to Christians, asking them to compare life outside of Christ, life in Christ, and calling them to live as those under Christ. He's going to ask them, is this worth it? What do you think? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to compare and contrast the two different lives. First, verses 20 through 21, we'll look at the life free from God. That's really what verses 20 and 21 are describing. The life free from God. Outside of God, outside of his morality, outside of his will, outside of worship to him, this is what life looks like and life was like for you Christians. This is what life was like free from God. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time 
from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. So Paul here is looking back on the Christian's previous condition. This is what you were like. This is what life was like before you chose to follow Jesus. And he says actually some shocking things. He says this is the default condition. This is the situation of everybody when they are born and when they're outside of Jesus Christ. This is what your life is like. For anybody who is not a Christian, for anybody who doesn't worship Christ, who is not a follower of Jesus, however you want to describe that, for anybody who is outside of Jesus, here's the default condition. This is the condition in which you live. And what does he say? You are a slave of sin. Here's the shocking truth for all people. Nobody is free. There is no one on God's green earth who is truly free. All of us, as a language we'll use, are slaves. The question is, to what are you enslaved? Outside of Christ, you are as Paul says, enslaved to sin, meaning you cannot help but sin. You cannot help but be in rebellion to God. Anybody outside of Jesus Christ is in rebellion to God. This is your previous condition. You can be enslaved to sin in different ways. I'll list three different ways I think you could be enslaved to sin. One, you might be blinded to sin. So that for the person who doesn't know God, who doesn't know what his word says, and isn't a follower of him, you will be in rebellion to God in ways you don't even realize because you don't know him. And this is true for us, and can be true for us as Christians, and we don't know God as well as we should. We might not even be realize ways in which we're acting sinfully or just can't help but sin. I think this is actually probably true for all of us to some extent. If we were perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, as we one day will be in heaven, but we're not there yet, we would know all the ways in which we sin, but I think there are all sorts of ways that we just don't even realize we're sinning. You can ask my wife that there are days where I go on end not even realizing how horrible I'm acting, right? We're just blinded to it. There are ways in which we're enslaved to sin just because we don't even realize it. We're not even cognizant of it. We're like, you know, Neo, while you're still in the Matrix. There's an old dated reference for you. Still trapped in the system, doesn't realize he's enslaved. That's one way we're... Enslaved sinners are blinded to it, just to sheer ignorance, not even realizing how wicked we are. Or we may be enslaved sin because we're attracted to it. That there's something about sinfulness and rebellion to God that is just appealing to us. The, the immorality, as God defines it, we would look at it and say, but that looks really good to me. Whether it be lusts or acting on our selfishness or on our anger. We think, if I do this, it'll be good. It'll be pleasing, and we're attracted to it. Kind of in the same way Adam and Eve were deceived and thought, I think disobeying God, that'll be good. We're attracted to it. We can also be enslaved just by being trapped in it. We might see this is wrong. I don't want it but I can't stop. We call that an addiction or being trapped in it. I know I don't want this. I know it's not good. I know what God says about it. 
But for some reason, like a dog returning to its vomit, I keep going back to it. In that, again, we could call it addiction, inner demons that get the best of us, however we want to describe it, we realize we're not strong enough. Something in us lacks the ability, lacks the power to overcome this. We just don't have it in us. And in all these ways, we're free from righteousness. We're enslaved to sin. In his book, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller uh, quotes an author by the name of David Foster Wallace. He's a popular author, by no means a Christian. David Foster Wallace is not in any way a Christian, but he's a compelling author and studier of humanity. And David Foster Wallace writes something compelling. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. That's David Foster Wallace, non-Christian, just writing, studier of humanity, says, everybody worships, you can't help it. There's going to be something in your life that is preeminent, that is above all, that you serve, that is your master. And he says, God might be a good idea, just because, from my experience and what I've seen, every other master will eat you alive. And he is right. Whether that master be money, or power, or success, or whatever it is, whatever you choose to serve as your God, freedom, whatever it may be, ultimately it will fail you and it will end up eating you alive from the inside out. You'll be mastered by it. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. You're enslaved to sin. You can't help it. You cannot do the righteous things that God created you to do. And here's an underlying truth of all this. God created you and made you for something different. He made all of us to live righteously with him and to enjoy him forever. God made us to be at peace with him. But sin separated us from God, and now we are enslaved to sin, and we are free from righteousness. It's out there, and we can't get it. So Paul says that's a natural condition that everybody's born into. Not knowing God outside of Christ, outside of righteousness, enslaved to sin. And what's the result of that? Where does that lead? Where does that get you? What's the outcome of that kind of life? So if you're a person who says, I want to live life on my own, I don't need God, I don't need Christ, I, I, I've got it all under control, I'm going to live life my way, here is the outcome for you. Frank Sinatra, if you want to live life your way, here's the fruit. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So Paul says, here's the result. Shame and death. It occurs to me that next year, next spring specifically, will be 20 years since I graduated high school, which is the oldest thing I've ever said. That's... um, 20 years since I graduated high school, 2023. Now... I can all but assure you I will not be going to my 20-year reunion if there is one. But if I were to go, I would probably have a shirt printed up that just said, I'm sorry, and just walk around with that so I didn't have to say it to every person. Because I can look back and know who I was as 17 to 18-year-old Aaron and think, what an idiot. It's painful 
to look back 20 years and think, just, what a fool. Ashamed, honestly. And by God's grace, I will, 20 years from now, I'll look back and say, that poor church. <laughs> we look back and easily consume. I'm ashamed by what I've done. And maybe that's how you're living now. And you carry that weight around you, just like a really heavy backpack that just kind of follows you day in and day out. You wake up in the morning and put it on. There's that shame, there's that guilt, and just live with it. That's what enslavement to sin does. Just putting on a backpack of shame and guilt and trudging through your day with it. And eventually, it leads to death. Paul here is talking about not just physical death, but spiritual death. Everybody's physically going to die. That's the end for all of us. But the question is, what happens then? And Paul is saying here, for all of us who are stuck in sin and just live with all of that shame and guilt all the way to the end, we will meet our Creator and our Judge and find condemnation. Spiritual death. One day those who are enslaved to their rebellion will get what they want. They will live in eternity separated from God. You lived your whole life rebelling against Him. That's the choice you made. I don't want anything to do with God. That choice will be honored for eternity. You will be apart from Him. And all of his goodness, all of his righteousness, all of his true freedom. Left to live forever in spiritual death. That's the life outside of Christ. You may live with an illusion of control. I don't want to give this up. I like this. I don't want to submit to anything else. I am mine. And Paul here wants to take the scales off your eyes a little bit, pull the curtain back and say, no, this is where this leads. You want to live on your own forever? You'll live on your own forever and you'll suffer under the weight of all of it. And you will die condemned forever. Never free from your sin. And you might say, well, who are you to define what sin is? And you know, we have modern definitions of sin. I think the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think our modern cultural definition of sin is I'm free to do whatever I want so long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And that's like modern ethic, modern righteousness. You can't tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want as long as it's not hurting anybody. Here's the problem with that. Everybody has a different definition of what hurts somebody else. And we are all actually, as it turns out, pretty connected. And what we do inevitably affects other people. There's no such thing as an action that doesn't affect somebody else. Very obvious example. As long as I use pornography in my own, in my own room, and by myself, and don't hurt anybody, it's fine, right? And I would say to you, well... The girls who are being sex trafficked to produce that, 
would say, actually, that does hurt somebody. There's no such thing as an action that hurts no one, a sin that hurts no one, even yourself. All rebellion against God ultimately hurts you and others. Our sins are never in a vacuum. They always have consequences. They always affect somebody. And none of us will be able to stand before God in the end and say, I was totally righteous, totally worthy, I never hurt anyone. We have a quote. We were talking about it last night, actually. We had people over. There's a quote that hangs in my dining room wall that Maggie put up. And it says, on, in that frame, it says, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. At some point, by God's grace, he has to work in us a hatred for sin and evil, a bitterness towards it, that we just don't want this enslavement to it anymore. And then when that happens, then Christ is sweet. Because in him we find forgiveness and freedom and grace. And that's what Paul talks about next. Verses 22 through 23. First we talked about a life free from God, and now just a little twist of words. Verses 22 through 23 describe the free life from God. The free life from God. We lived once in a life free from God. Now, having known Jesus Christ, we have free life from God. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. It's free life from him. Verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the contrast. But now. So Paul's comparing life then and life now. But now, now something has changed. Specifically, now you're under new ownership. You were a master, or you were mastered by slaves. You were servant of sin, sorry. You were servant of sin. But now you're a servant of the Lord, a slave of God. Paul says in verse 19 of the same chapter, he's speaking in human terms, he's using the slavery analogy, and it's almost his way of saying, I know this is an imperfect analogy, but it's the best I can come up with, this idea of slavery and being mastered by and owned by. And he used that to describe our relationship with God, that we belong to him, he is our Lord, he is our master. That's our identity. As Christians, we are in Christ. We belong to him, and he is our Lord. I know of a story of... A young high school girl who was in her health class at school, and in the health class, uh, they had to write out kind of what their identity was. How did they identify as? Uh, It's just common practice now. How do you want to be known? How do you want to be identified? And she was a a well-catechized individual. Um, So she wrote down question one, the answer to question one of the Heidelberg Catechism, and she wrote, I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful identity. Who am I? How do I identify? How do I want to be known? Here's how I am known. I belong body and soul and life and death to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen. That's in, Paul's saying that's who you are now. You belong to Jesus. And there's an important point here for all of us who are Christians because we love to know Jesus as Savior, but do we also know him as our Lord? That's the point here. You are enslaved to him. So again, actually, nobody's free. 
Remember I said earlier, there's nobody on God's green earth that's actually free. You are either enslaved to sin, or you are a slave of God. You belong to Jesus Christ, and he is your Lord and your master. So if you are here today and you are a Christian, know this, Jesus Christ is not only your friend, he is your friend, but he is not only your helper, he is your helper. He is not only your rock and your refuge, he's all those things, your savior, but he is also the Lord you worship and the one who owns you. And that means that no decision you make is outside of his lordship. And if we were to worship him, then everything we do in all walks of life, no matter what it is, we submit it to Jesus Christ and say, God, Lord, what would you have us do now and here in this? What would you have us? So, we go back to the original question. Does God make us change our whole life if we become Christian? Yes. Absolutely. That might not be a satisfying answer. It might be a really scary answer if you're not a Christian. But here's the reality. To be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ, is to have your whole life ordered by what God says in his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. It impacts everything. And that is what Jesus himself teaches. Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus tells us what we must choose if we follow him. How much of my life is going to be affected if I become a Christian? Jesus says... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, whoever would hold on to his life, whoever says, I don't want to change, I just want to control all of it, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus says, if you want to follow me, well, your whole life now belongs to me. I've heard people give evangelism instruction, teaching that when we offer Christ to people or offer Christianity to people, uh, we should have them Imagine what life would be like if you followed Jesus. And I think the underlying assumption for most of that is, if you follow Jesus, your life will get better. Now here's the truth, probably will. I can honestly say, my life, I believe, is much better than it would have been had I not followed Jesus. He's a good God. He gives good gifts. But... If you were to give that question to one of the New Testament saints... What would your life look like if you followed Jesus? The answer would probably be beheading, being burned at the stake, martyred. The reality is, give your life to Jesus. He owns it. And he's going to take you where he's going to take you. And we have to remember we follow a Savior who went to the cross. So if that's where we go, that's where we go. That's something I want to communicate to my own children. Choose to follow Jesus. There's a cost to that. It might make you a little bit different. It might make you seem weird to other people. The question is, is it worth it? I think it is.
as we submit every aspect of our life to the Lordship of Jesus, whether it be our calendar, our finances, our business, our relationships, as we submit all those things to the Lordship of Jesus, what we find is that he produces righteousness in us. Paul says here, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Sanctification is a fancy word for becoming more like Jesus. As you submit all things to him, God makes you more and more like Jesus. How does he do that? Jesus is the one who has the power to defeat sin that enslaves you. Jesus defeats the power of sin. Why? He's the only one who never sinned. He's the only one who lived a perfect life. He's the only one who could go through all life perfectly and righteously. The only righteous person who ever lived. So as we constantly are defeated by the power of sin, Jesus never was. So in Christ, we can overcome sin. And we actually have the freedom, the ability to not sin. Jesus is free from the presence of sin. Where is Jesus now? Those of you who who know your Bible, where is Jesus now? Ascended in heaven. A place, place of perfect righteousness. Where Jesus is is a place free from sin. So if we are in Christ, united to him, we actually have like holiness that comes from him that is supernatural. That's not a part of us. We are attached to that. And I'm talking about things I don't fully understand, but there's, there's a mysterious stuff in this. That we're united to Christ. We're united to one who reigns in heaven, free from the presence of sin. It's the only place we can go where sin does not linger. I don't care where you school your kids. I don't care what part of the country you move to. Wherever you go, Sin will be there. It'll linger in your own heart. Where can you go that is free from the presence of sin? Heaven. That's it. Jesus is there. So united to him, we're we're free from the presence of sin. And united to Jesus Christ, we're free from the penalty of sin. Because Jesus died and resurrected and ascended, he died on the cross for our sins. He took all the full penalty of sin, the judgment of God on himself, so he paid the cost of, of sin is demanded by the justice of God. We can't have sins unaccounted for. We can't have um, wicked actions that never meet justice. We know that can't be right. We know that evil and wickedness must pay somehow if we live in a just world, if God is just. The evil that is done must be accounted for. So how can we expect the evil that we've done to not be accounted for? Do not be judged. Well, where is the judge? It's judged on the cross of Jesus Christ. The penalty is paid there so that we may be free. So in Christ, the penalty is paid, and the penalty of sin is no longer laid on us. In Christ, the power, the presence, the penalty of sin is done away with. Nothing by our doing, all because of Jesus Christ. And through him, we have sanctification being made more and more like him. We have life in him. Paul says this is where sanctification ends, eternal life. This is the thing we're all looking for. That's hardwired in you. 
the thing that makes you seek after the supernatural, the, the transcendent. Every one of us has something in us that drives us to want a transcendent supernatural experience. So we look for it in dumb things. So we play excessive amounts of video games. Why? Well, for a transcendent sense of accomplishment. It's actually what it's being rooted out there. I conquered something. I accomplished something. We eat too much food, sinfully, gluttonously. Why? Because we're looking for some type of transcendent experience in it. We feel happy. We commit sexually immoral acts. Why? Because I'm looking for something of intimacy and rapturous experience to be known and, and applauded and loved and accepted. And we look for it in the wrong places. All of us hardwired looking for eternity, eternal life. And Paul says we have it in Jesus Christ and being bonded, enslaved to him. So he lays before us two choices, two options. There's no middle ground. Bondage to sin leads to shame and death. Bondage to God, to Christ, which leads to sanctification in life. And that contrast is summarized in one of the great verses in all of Christian scripture, Romans 6.23. Look at this as we close. Look at this with me. Even if you think you've been a Christian for a long time, I've memorized this, I've got it all. Put your eyes on the page. Read it and take it in for your own soul's good. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel. That's, that's our faith summarized. If you want to know what Christianity is all about, there it is. If you want to go your own way and work your way through this life and trust at the end that you will have lived a good life because of what you accomplished on your own two feet, here's the end of it. Here's the wages. That word wages is a word for a soldier's pay. This is their reward for the work they did under command. Here's your earnings. Death. Which makes sense. Because who would be so arrogant to say that I live such a good life that I deserve eternal perfection? Nobody will stand before God and say it at the end. I live such a perfect and wonderful life that my just reward is eternal joy and perfection. How great am I? That's a terribly arrogant thing to say, because it, and it's wrong. The reality is, here's what I've earned for all my good works, through all my awesomeness, through all my accomplishment. Here's the reward. Death. Because you're sinful. That's what we earn. It's different from like, the gift. Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
something we could never earn, a gift given to be received. So we go back and we answer the question, will God make me change my whole life? First, yeah. He'll ask you to change everything. Your whole life must be submitted to Jesus if you're going to follow him. And following Jesus will affect every part of your life. However, if you are in Jesus Christ, you'll want to. So you can say it another way. No, God won't force you. You will. He'll change your heart in such a way that you want to follow him and want to submit everything to him because you know he is your Lord and Master and you love him and worship him. The question is, have you done that? You hear as a Christian, you hear as a non-Christian, the question that lays before you is, which one? Which one do you choose? Will you be the Master or will you voluntarily give up your life and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And it's a question that's put before all of us. You lay down the burden you feel of guilt and shame and sin at the cross. Find freedom from sin by serving Jesus Christ. If you do, the gift that's given freely is eternal life, and it's before you now. Would you pray with me? Father, there's a reality here that it's hard to put into words um, that are, I guess, limited and frail human minds are going to be forever longing to fully grasp that while we deserve judgment in Jesus Christ, you freely give us eternal life and righteousness and sanctification and all these things and uh, speak of just joy and peace in you. Even as I say, we should be hooting and hollering and celebrating and rejoicing as if we're at a sports game, but um, in some ways we've just become used to this idea as Christians. And I pray, Lord, that we would never become so used to it that we don't marvel at your grace and your forgiveness and your gift of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would free us all from sin in this life and eternally forevermore. May we give our lives to you knowing that your Son gave his perfect life for us. May you be praised. Amen.